All right, welcome back to a bonus episode of the Blasters and Blades podcast. So, hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies, a place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. So without further ado, let me tell you what we're doing right now. We're getting ready to uh, release some of the archive that we found from when we were the sci-fi shenanigans. Uh, we're going to get those up there for, for the posts that were brought down. We thought you might enjoy them. Um, and so without further ado, let us uh, let us roll that beautiful... Oh, wait, they're going to sue me. Play it. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi fans. Time for your daily dose of insanity. Over here at the Sci-Fi Shenanigans Podcast with your hosts, Jair Handley and me, Chris Winder. Just two nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions. A place where the sky's the limit, space is the place, and nerds run the world. Without further ado. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Sci-Fi Shenanigans Podcast. Today, I'll be uh, interviewing there solo. Um, Chris is a little bit under the weather. I won't even make the gratuitous uh, crown jokes because, you know, you don't want to hit a man while he's sick. He might barf on you. So instead, we are going to interview the authors of the Orion Connie. We have returning guest, guest whoo, speak much, Jonathan Yanez, and his co-author, Jay and Cheney. So welcome to the show. So since we've had um, Jonathan on before, and some people might be familiar with him, we're going to start with you. So I'm going to introduce J.N. Cheney. J.N. Cheney is a mysterious soul, though it has been confirmed that he is a master of fine arts and creative writing and fancies himself quite the Super Mario Brothers fan. He migrates often, uh, sometimes even with the season, but was last seen in Avon Park, Florida. Any sightings should be reported as they are rare. I can confirm that he has once seen in Las Vegas, though it could have been a mirage. Just saying. Um. Hey, it's nice to nice to uh, be on the show. I uh, actually live in Vegas now, so no more, no longer in Avon Park. Wow! So he's so mysterious; he doesn't even tell Amazon. He's like, "No, they, they they'll find me when they need me." The Bezos knows all. <laughs> yeah, I need to I need to get all that updated. But uh, yeah, no, I moved here probably three and a half weeks ago or so, something like that. Outstanding. So, are you liking it there in the sunny Vegas? Oh yeah, it's great. Um, I haven't been here through the summer, so like that dry, um, like imposing heat that everybody talks about, I haven't experienced that yet. It's mostly been dry cold. Uh, so freezing temperatures at night, they get down in like the 30s and 40s. Not quite used to that, but luckily I'm an author, and so I just stay inside all day. <laughs> Outstanding. So Did the, uh, the second... Did you have to change your wardrobe, Jeff? Did you have to buy some more stuff when you moved over to Vegas? Because all your stuff is probably for like hotter weather in Florida, yeah? Yeah. Um, I mean, I have, I have a ton of t-shirts, so I need to go out and buy like some long sleeve stuff. The only thing is, I mean, it's going to get like really hot here again, so I don't know how much I really need. Um, but I need, I need some kind of coat because I bought like a hoodie, or I brought my hoodie, you know, and that thing is just like, it's so thin that it, it's almost like negligible. It doesn't do anything. Yeah, we have to get you like some sort of like um, Sherlock Holmes, like a big coat or something like that. Know, right? 
I see guys, I see people walking around like that. And, uh, and I'm always like, that's like really, uh, it, it's like over the top, but it still looks, I think it looks really cool. So I'm just like really envious of their nerdy, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. Or like Constantine, that, that yeah. guy knew how to dress. Exactly. So, so if you, if you- if you don't go for the pea coat and you go for the Sherlock Holmes coat instead, you've got to get the slouch hat and the pipe. Oh, cool. <laughs> obviously, yeah. I mean, because those go together. Everyone knows that. So the second part of the introduction, dear listener, is I talked about how uh, I first found them. So I met Jeff at the Atrium Bar, a smoky little section of Las Vegas that's the epicenter of hopelessness and despair. I was about to put my last nickel in the machine and give it a go, but Jeff talked me off the ledge. He brought me a, bought me a complimentary water because he's generous like that and gave me the most cryptic life lesson I've ever received. The house always wins, he'd said. I nodded along sagely, but he wasn't done. And on the Ides of March, they win twice, so avoid the Caesar. Ba-da-boom. All right, that's the best I got. Chris is the jokester, people. I'm sorry. All right, but I did see you like little, Vegas. We need to get you like a little trained monkey. That does yeah. the whole, like, the drum and the clang, like, brunch. Yeah. <laughs> or I'll just leave the jokes to Chris. <laughs> but he, he was sick, so what are you going to do? What are you going to do? All right. And our second guest was uh, is author Jonathan Yanez. According to his profile, he's more animal than man. He bleeds caffeine and, oh, I'm sure he's kidding, right? It sounded cool, though. So he writes because that's what he was born to do, and he freaking loves doing it. Um, I have since named him when I found out how fast he writes the cyborg wolf. Uh, he loves the wolf moniker, and he, there's no way he's human when he writes that quickly. So, so now you know he's part man, part machine, part wolf. Uh, and when he's not writing those crazy stories, he's at home with his lovely wife and two-year-old daughter creating crazy stories. So, Thanks for I, I having did. us. Absolutely. Now, when I wrote that introduction that I partly stole from your Amazon page uh, – it said two. Now she's still two. Your your little space marine. Yeah, she's still two. She turns three in April. Oh, okay, okay. So it's not out of date yet. I'll have to remember that if we have you back on again. <laughs> Sometimes we forget to update things. But um, all right. So this is the um, the part where I tell you how I first found Jonathan. Uh, we we covered that in episode twenty four. So check it out. And if you haven't listened to it, what are you doing with your life? But uh, instead, I thought it'd be kind of cool, since you can go back and listen to how we first found Jonathan, to, uh, to find out what my impression was of him after I met him in person. So as I, I ran into him at the, uh, the conference center in Vegas, where I also met Jeff, and I remember thinking, dude, less Red Bull. I mean, seriously, <laughs> the dude has more energy than any one person should have. So clearly Cyborg, right? So it works. Yeah, like, like South Park had an episode about man, bear, pig. So I'm right. like man, wolf, machine. I believe it. Absolutely. It makes perfect sense. Perfect sense. It's like that. those CRISPR kids. I have the – but I have the wolf DNA and the machine DNA in me. <laughs> so uh, this is not in the show notes, but I'm going to add lib it a little bit. So how did uh, Jonathan and Jeff – how did you two meet each other? Do you want to take this one, Jeff? Uh, I honestly don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it feels like I've known Jeff a lot longer than I probably actually have. I want to say earlier last year, probably like just through Facebook at first, and then started talking about books and marketing and stuff like that. And then it wasn't until this year sometime, maybe around, what do you think, August, Jeff? Do you think August is around when we started talking about co-writing? Yeah, somewhere around there. Um I think that yeah, I think that's about right. Yeah, so Facebook basically is how we met and then um 
started talking about possibly doing a co-authorship and what that would look like. And we have a really good system now. I think maybe just um, streamlining one or two more things, and we're pretty much just have a machine rolling with our production. So the cyborg uh, Zuckerberg introduced you, the cyborg Wolf, to Jeff. So does that make you part cyborg too as well, Jeff? Uh. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so we'll move along. So we know we asked Jonathan these questions, um, but we've gained new listeners since we aired episode 24. So Jonathan, you get to answer too. Um, if you've heard this before, we apologize, but you get a new shiny Jeff to talk to. So uh, plus we're going to talk about a new set of books uh, that seems pretty exciting to me. I already bought my copy. So without further ado, let's get this started. So the religion question, Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly? You go first, Jeff. <clears throat> Um, man, that's, that's really tough. Uh, I'd say Star Trek and then Firefly and then Star Wars. Wow. I might have to kick you off for that, but let's see if John can redeem it. I think I still have to kick, uh, stick with my answer for the first time around, which was Stargate. Oh yeah. You can't go wrong with that one. So, all right. But then after that, I think maybe Firefly. Firefly was good, but they ended it too soon. Too soon. Oh, of course. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> so uh, what do you love about science fiction as a genre, Jeff? Um, well, the biggest thing, I guess, would be uh, the thing that sets it apart from every other genre um, in fiction is its ability to predict the future. Um, and I don't just mean that in like a hypothetical sort of way. I mean that in like uh, a very, a very literal way. Um, there have been sci-fi stories and uh, and you know books short and, and short stories that have accurately predicted inventions and technology uh, of the future. Um, you know, Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea predicted um, the first submarine. There's actually a submarine that's modeled directly after the Nautilus that works and is fully functional using the. Um, uh, like what uh, the author, what Jules Verne had written as a description for that. Uh, you know, there, there have been predictions um, like Orson Scott Card predicted online blogging with Ender's Game uh, before that became a, a thing. There's even a, um, I think it's H.G. Wells. I think he, I think he was the one that wrote this, but there's a, uh, there's an old play about a war between it's a sci-fi play about a war between um, France and Germany where um, I think Germany drops a bomb on France and it's the biggest bomb that's ever been produced. Uh, And it uses an unknown element in the play, a recently discovered unknown element to create the explosion. And in the play, they call it the atom bomb. And this was, um, several years before the invention of the actual atomic bomb. Uh, and the play directly inspired the scientist working on the bomb. And that's why we call it that. And uh, there, there's like a whole documentary series that, you know, uh, your listeners can check out if they're interested called uh, Prophets of Sci-Fi and uh, Prophets of Science Fiction. And it just goes through like all these like historic instances where, um, you know, sci-fi authors have accurately predicted the future. And that is like a huge responsibility to take on. But it's also like re- very rewarding because, you know, if you if you uh, like, I mean, you look at the golden age of sci-fi, the three big names, right? Like the big three, um, 
Asimov, uh, Arthur C. Clarke, and Heinlein, you know, and they all had books where they create, they, they came up with like new inventions that had never really been thought of before. And now today we actually have those inventions in real life. People looked at those things that they made and they thought out to a very like micro level and we created them. Scientists got in a the lab, they said, that's a great idea. And then they named the invention after the thing in the book. And uh, that's happened countless times. So science fiction has that ability, like just because you're not it, you're not um, a scientist, you're not a, a physicist or an engineer, doesn't mean that you can't create things and then inspire other people in the future to do that. Uh, and you know, additionally, like you can inspire budding um, physicists, you know, future physicists and future scientists to get out there and like explore the universe. Uh, Carl Sagan famously had a uh, painting outside of his office of uh, Mars from not, not the real Mars, but the one from um, Edward Rice Burroughs book, uh, John Carter of Mars, or the first books called uh, a princess of Mars. And uh, you know, he would look at that painting every time he went into his office because that's the series that inspired him to become an astrophysicist when he was a child so, and that's, you know, I mean, he's like one of the most famous um, astrophysicists of all time. So, you know, that's the great thing about writing in this genre is you, you have no idea when you're coming up with these like crazy ideas, who you're going to inspire to actually one day create that idea and make it a reality. Uh, everyone laughed at Star Trek, uh, you know, back in the day when they had their, their little flip, you know, devices, their, uh, uh, you know, th their comms and everything. Uh, you know, teleportation, uh, you know, the transporters, warp drive, all these different things that, uh, that they had invented in the show really as, as sort of an easy way to communicate and get to places. But there are scientists out there right now working on making all of those things real. Like, I mean, we have cell phones in our pockets uh, now and, and uh, you know, Star Trek had that first. So you never know, you know, you never know uh, if you're going to write a book that's going to one day become a reality or some facet of it is going to become a reality. Uh, but that's why sci-fi to me is so interesting and uh, so unique from every other genre out there. Wow. That was deep. Probably the, the longest answer we've gotten to that question. So um, do you think you can live up to that one, John, as you answer what you love about science fiction? No, definitely. I'm not even going to try to live up to that one. But this is going to tell you a lot about Jeff's and I relationship, my answer. So I just like messing around. So I just like the unlimited possibility. I think that's why I like Stargate the best out of all the different sci-fi movies or shows is because you can go through that Stargate and there could be anything on the other side. And there's nobody to tell you like, oh, no, that couldn't exist. Sure could. Anything can exist in sci-fi. So that's my uh, number one reason why I love the genre, because for me, it equals freedom. Okay. I like that answer. The infinite possibilities. So, all right. So what's your first memory of watching, reading, or playing games in the genre of science fiction, Jeff? Greatest memory playing games in sci-fi? No, I said, watch, what's your first memory of science fiction, whether it's reading a book, watching a TV oh. show, playing a game? Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, watching Star Trek, The Next Generation with my dad. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's back when I was, uh, probably like eight, nine years old. 
he tried before that to get me to watch Star Wars, A New Hope, when I was like six and I was bored to tears because it wasn't a cartoon. Um, but eventually I went to Russia and I spent, um, I spent a summer there in the foreign exchange program. And while I was there, I only had like Russian movies to watch. And because I wasn't fluent, I could only speak a few, like a few phrases and stuff. I would get so like frustrated and bored. And I was like, you know, can I, do you have anything that's in English that I can please watch? Um, you know, and the guy had, uh, the guy that I was staying with the family, they had Star Wars on VHS, um, all three of them. And so I would put that on in my room and I would just watch that like every day. Um, I would watch one of those movies and I cycled through them over a two month period so much, so many times that I, I had like most of it memorized. Um, and that's, that's what got me into star Wars. You know, before that, I didn't really know much about it, but I was obsessed after that. Uh, and then of course my dad got me into star Trek. Uh, but those are probably my two earliest, um, serious exposures into sci-fi and afterwards, you know, I would watch anything with spaceships in it. That's cool. I didn't know you went to Russia, Jeff. Find yeah, new uh, stuff all the time. Yeah, I uh, I spent two summers in Russia, uh, a semester of high school in China, and then I spent a summer in Africa. Oh snap! Yeah. I didn't know any of that. That's cool. <laughs> World traveler. All right. What about you, John? What's your first memory of um, watching or reading or playing games in the genre of science fiction? I think I'm with Jeff where I think it was Star Wars that I was sick when I was little. And again, on the VHS, um, at our house, we didn't watch a whole lot of TV. So when we were able to watch TV, it was kind of like, you know, like a big deal or like a treat. So when we were sick, we could sit in front of the TV and my mom would let us watch stuff. So I was sick and I think somebody lent us Star Wars movies. So I was watching those on VHS. And yeah, that's my very first memory of uh, sci-fi, watching Star Wars. Okay. So the, um, yeah, it's funny what you watch when you're sick. I used to watch the Rambo movies and all of them back to back. <laughs> and if you do that, you will find, by the way, that his scars move around. Do you know that there's a new Rambo coming out? Really? Schwarzenegger? Or, yes. uh, no, Schwarzenegger Stallone or is it a new guy? Yeah. Stallone, he's fighting the cartels now. Wow. Okay. Never say <laughs> die. Good for him, I guess. Yeah, right. he's back at it. Good for him. All right. So the, um, now Rambo is a show note. <laughs> so how did your love of the genre of science fiction transition into your writing novels in it, Jeff? Um, well, I, uh, I always read stories with my mom and, uh, you know, like she always like pushed, you know, reading, uh, every night. And so I grew up reading, but I didn't really grow up reading science fiction. Um, I'm from like a really small town and I went to a school that, I mean, they just never made you read anything. So if it wasn't for my mom, I never would have read a single book. Um, when I got to be about 17 and this was, this was after I, I tried writing my own stories and they were just, they were just awful, you know? Um, but those were science fiction stories. And I think that I was inspired mostly from gaming and from anime and movies and things like that. So I wasn't really like, I didn't really get into it because of books. It wasn't until I, I got to be about 17 or 18 years old where I read Ender's Game. And when I picked that up, which was recommended by a friend of mine that I played EverQuest with, um, 
And, you know, I picked that one up and I read it and I was blown away. I was like, this is the most amazing book I've ever read. Um, I got super into it to the point, like so much so that I went and I, I read it immediately again. Um, so just back to back, you know, and after I finished that story, uh, I was, I, I felt so connected to the main character more than I ever had any, any, you know, fictional character that I was like, this is amazing. I want more of this. Um, so, and I, I went out and I read, um, uh, the forever war, you know, Starship Troopers, you know, I, I started going backwards and, and going, uh, you know, over the last 50, 60 years and reading as much as I could. Um, and you know, I went back and I read Ender's Game after all that again. And that's when I was like, you know, I was in, I was in my first year of college. I was bouncing around from different majors the whole time I was writing stories on the internet anonymously. Um, and I was like really enjoying that. And so after reading Ender's Game, I think for the third time, I decided, you know, I really like, I really like sci-fi. I really like this style of writing. Uh, you know, I think I want to do this. And so I started writing science fiction stories on the internet, whereas before it was more like fantasy, you know, like video game uh, fan fiction, that type of thing. And then from there, I had to pick a major, you know, after two years in college. Uh, and I had the option of like, you know, literature or creative writing. And so I had a discussion with my mom about it and she said, well, if you like to write, just do it, you know, like follow your dream, you know, make this, make this happen if that's what you want. So on a one day on a whim, because we had to pick, I said, you know, screw it. I'm going to do it. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to major in creative writing. And so like, I think that that was the moment right there where I, I pretty much like made that decision. Uh, like, this is what I'm going to do. And, uh, you know, all throughout college, every writing assignment I had, I, I tried to write sci-fi, uh, much to the uh, frustration of my professors. And because, um, you know, they, they all wanted literary fiction. And I was like, well, I'm not about that life. So um, <laughs> it's, it's going to be spaceships and, and genetic engineering and like, you know, sci-fi craziness. And, um, and so I kept doing it and I kept reading it. And I uh, kept getting like, you know, feedback from from friends and family and people on the Internet, you know, and um, which really, I mean, let's be real, like your friends and family don't really give you the best criticism. So if I wanted brutal honesty, I had to go online um, and I just kept doing that. And I did that for probably a decade until I felt comfortable enough to where I was like, OK, now I'm going to write a book because I finally feel like I'm ready you know, I put in all those years of practice uh, before I felt like I could stumble out of the gate and actually try. Um, a lot of people don't wait that long. I've noticed, you know, from the people in this industry that I've talked to. Uh, but I think that I just needed to. Wow. So whatever happened to those early writings, are they still available around? Uh, no, I think the website I used to post to went completely defunct. Uh, the owner didn't pay the bill or something. But um I mean, nobody would want to read that stuff anyway. I wrote a I wrote a short story. Well, I, I guess it was like half of a novel after a while, and it never it was never finished. But if you're a, if you're a Legend of Zelda fan, which I'm sure some people are, I love Zelda. You know, I was obsessed, and uh, I wrote a I wrote a story called the Fourth Triforce piece, and it was just about like Link and Zelda and and like you know their kids and stuff, and like you know Ganon comes back and. 
it was just this really long story that really didn't have an ending, but it, it sort of helped me understand like how people, like what, what people want in stories, you know, like I would post a chapter on the internet on this web forum and then people would give me feedback and they'd be like, Oh, I like where this is going. Or I, I don't really like that. Or this was boring and surprisingly really useful information that really like helped me evolve as a writer um, helped me learn like grammar, proper grammar and, and uh, style and all that. And then eventually when I got into my major and I started taking classes, I, uh, I felt like I was a little bit ahead because I had been doing this already for a few years and I'm getting like critical, harsh, blunt feedback from people, you know, online. Okay. So what about you, John? How did your love of the genre of science fiction transitioning to your writing novels in it? I think my love of the genre, how it comes out, or when I first started writing sci-fi, because I've only been writing sci-fi now for a year. Before that, it was more like fantasy or urban fantasy. But I think my love of the genre comes out when writing just with the characters and character development. So everybody who knows me knows I like uh, comics and like superheroes. My favorite hero is Wolverine. And I love the fact that that character, Wolverine, because he's lived so long, he's lived through, you know, World War II to the present day to some comics even further on, that he's that same character. He's that same kind of uh, reluctant hero, no matter what setting that you put him in. So you could put him in World War II. You could put him in Vietnam. He's the same guy. You could put him up in space in a spaceship, and he's that same character. So... I think character development is what has brought me to sci-fi and it's kind of like um, helped me expand by like, yeah, like not only can we write these great stories here on earth, but there's like space to be explored with these same great characters. Fair enough. All right. So what do you think is the largest influence on your writing? Is there one author who's always, who you've always enjoyed and try to emulate? Is it an experience you had as a child? We'll start with Jeff. Um, I guess it depends on the series because with uh, the Variant Saga, which is my first series, um, I very much took inspiration from Ender's Game because it starts with a boy that is like seven years old. Both stories do. Um, whereas, you know, the later books, you know, like now renegade uh focuses on a very different character you know an adult man in his like late 30s early 40s who is uh you know uh, a reluctant hero um anti-hero type person who um is very brash and crude and sarcastic and you know drinks heavily very very different and so i would say like early on you know uh, in my writing career and uh you know when i got into reading orson scott carr played he was, a, he was a huge influence on me. Um, and so my first series naturally reflected that. Over time, I think that that has changed. I don't read his stuff anymore. Uh, and not because it's not good or anything like that. I just think that I've moved past it uh, as far as my tastes go. Um, a lot of stuff that, a lot of the places I draw influence from actually don't come from books directly. They come from other forms of media. So uh, things I grew up with, like anime, and like sci-fi anime so we have like cowboy bebop you know particularly for renegade star like cowboy bebop outlaw star um trigun you know those types of space westerns and uh those were shows that i grew up watching excessively 
You know, if they were on, I would stop whatever I was doing to watch them. Uh, and then later on, shows like Battlestar Galactica and Firefly, uh, Star Trek, and you know, so on and so forth. Uh, Stargate, you know, was a was a massive show for me growing up, uh, like in high school and college, um, which is probably why I had like portals and Stargate type devices in my first series. Um, but also video games too, you know, like a lot of people discount games, but um, Fallout was a big influence on my first series. And, uh, you know, I, I love playing games with ships, you know, spaceships. And like, I was, I was a big fan of Dead Space and, you know, Mass Effect, especially. Um, and like, you know, Star Wars, The Old Republic and, and so on and so forth. So I draw a lot of inspiration from those types of things and movies, of course. Um, but like, as far as books go, really, it's about the last thing I read. Um, and more recently, that was like Red Rising, you know, and uh, I've been reading a little bit more of Stephen King. Uh, for a little while, it was Kurt Vonnegut, you know, so it all just depends. But um, I think that's that's really how it is for a lot of people. We just we're consuming so much media that a lot of it just like buries itself in our in our heads and it just never leaves. So, you know that comes out in our writing a lot. Okay. So basically a sum of all parts. Yeah. Um, particularly, like I said, uh, anime and, uh, you know, really like eighties and nineties, you know, uh, movies and, and shows. All right. What about you, Jonathan? What is the uh, single largest influence on your writing? Oh man, the single largest. I'm like, Jeff, I feel like my mind is like a meat grinder of like different things that I consume. So whether it's like a, you know, an anime or a audio book that I'm listening to now, or just like in passing conversation, like what somebody said, um, like it's all fuel for the fire when I sit down on the, at the computer, like growing up for sure, I would say books wise, it was C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. I love those guys. I read Chronicles of Narnia multiple times while Lord of the Rings. And, but nowadays, yeah, it's just, I don't really have a whole lot of time to sit down and read just because life is bananas. JR, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Life is, I mean, they're just like, everything's pulling for your time. So I, uh, I listen to audiobooks now. And then even when I'm watching like, you know, my little pony with my daughter, there's things from that that I can pull too. I'm like, yeah, that's a good idea. Pinkie Pie and Applejack are having drama. I can work with that in my next book. <laughs> so that's been a, a running joke. I um, this show is is affiliated with the Keystroke Medium podcast and uh, YouTube channel, and one of their newer hosts uh, made a joke once about a year ago. She was going to write uh, My Little Pony Space Marines. <laughs> so that's been yeah. a running joke. <laughs> Obviously, you couldn't do that because of uh, copyright, et cetera, et cetera. But but somebody should write something that's that's similar. That would be kind of funny. Dude, you give me two weeks, I will pump out a book for you. That's my, instead of Little Pony, will be like My Murderous Pony, the Space Marine Dude, edition. do it. I would totally buy it. We'd have you back and talk about it even. Instead of Applejack, we'd have like a character named Apple Crack. Do it. Do it. <laughs> I'll make sure she listens to this episode too. All right. <laughs> All right. So transitioning from the writing side, let's uh, talk about things from a, a fan centric angle. So have you gotten any cool fan art or had anyone cosplay your characters yet, Jeff? Uh, so you said fan art or cosplay? Correct. Yeah. So um, I haven't had any cosplay yet. Um, that That's like next level stuff. Um, no, I've had, 
Fan art has been uh, sent in, which is pretty cool. I had a, a fan draw Jace um, and uh, had, a, had a fan draw Renegade Star at one point. I was contacted recently by a fan who wanted to make some like YouTube shorts, you know, uh, three-dimensional uh, videos. Um, and, you know, I was like, yeah, that's fine. You know, and he, he kept asking me if like, this is okay. Is this okay? And I'm like, dude, just do whatever you want, man. Like it's, it's, it's uh, fan fiction. Like this is your thing. Um, and if anybody ever wants to do that kind of thing, like I really don't care. You know, I, I, I find it like complimentary. Um, I'm not one of those authors that thinks that like fan fiction is evil. Cause I used to write fan fiction. Like that's, that really like surprised me when I heard that for the first time that like certain authors were like really opposed to fan fiction. Um, it's the monetization angle that, that'll get them. In yeah. There. But, but well, cause it's like fan fiction, like you, you, no one's going to sell that, you know, and if they tried, it's illegal. So like really you're just complaining about people writing stories in your universe um, on the internet, well, which the issue was that a lot of the sites would have ads that would run or YouTube would have monetization. So you're actually by default by content, any content being there, they were getting paid, which messed with copyright. But most of those, um, the, the, co the fan fiction has a website that's truly, uh, user funded. So that's not an issue anymore on the fanfic side. And then as far as YouTube, you can choose not to monetize a video. So I think a lot of those legal concerns are gone. So yeah, I'm with you. I don't necessarily have a problem with it either. I think it's a, an ultimate compliment if you affect them that way. Oh yeah. And, and additionally too, like if you embrace your fandom, um, it'll, it'll just make you more successful uh, I was I was reference Halo and uh, Bungie like back you know when they were still managing Halo and now I think it's like three four three Industries or whatever but um, you know back in the day when I think Halo One was really like at its peak um, this small company which was just like a couple of guys started using uh, in game Halo multiplayer to create like short little videos right and this was really the birth of a genre of filmmaking called machinima. And uh, they, they're rooster teeth now, and they're a massive internet company based out of, uh, I think it's Austin uh, right now, but huge company. They've got like anime, you know, that, that are like in Best Buy and, and like Walmart and stuff and, you know, massive production company that's expanded dramatically. Uh, but they started with those red, these this show called Red versus Blue, and it was just use they were just using the Halo um, in-game engine to bob the characters' heads up and down, and then they would put voices on top of it, and it was like the cheapest looking thing, but it was hilarious, and people really liked it. And so instead of cracking down on that like they could have, Bungie was like, "Oh well, yeah, we fully endorse this. We fully endorse all forms of machinima with our games. You don't have to ask our permission. Just do it." It's the same thing that Star Wars does, where they're just like, "Do whatever you want," because like, make a fan film if you want, like, do you know, write fan fiction if you want, because whatever it is, it's going to further our brand. It's going to further the interest in the universe, and it's going to get people talking about stuff. So I've always just said, you know, you should just support it. Even if it's not great, you know, like as long as it's coming from a good place uh, and fans are doing it because like they just like your universe, there shouldn't really be a problem. Even if they are making like five or ten bucks on it, like who cares? Yeah, um, I, I think the issue really, I think it's something, you know, if you don't defend the copyright, you lose it. So I think 
there are issues and I'm not a lawyer involved, but like I said, I'm, I'm with you on the, in the general sense, I really don't care. But what about, uh, what about you, John? Cause we could, we could talk about fanfic and all that all day long and bore the, bore the, <laughs> the other, other, you know, however many people are listening right now. So John, save us from ourselves. <laughs> um, I'm with, uh, Jeff on this one. I haven't had anybody cosplay my characters, but I did have a fan who lives in the Philippines go to a cosplay convention. And while she was there, she saw these like, um, archangel characters from my archangel wars book. It wasn't them exactly like they weren't trying to be characters in my book, but they look exactly like them. So she sent me tons of pictures from that convention, which was cool. And then other times like I've done talks at schools. So the teacher at one of the schools that I did a talk at, she bought a series of my books for her class. And then afterwards, the students like wrote me letters, how much they liked it. And they drew pictures and stuff like that. And I've gotten other like uh, fan artwork through emails and just online. And like what uh, Jeff was saying, I totally support all that stuff because not only is it really cool for me to think that other people enjoy my work enough where they're investing time creating their own art within the universe that I, I, um, I created, but I think it's really cool connecting with them as well. Cause even if they're artists, we're all creative. So our fires all burning, even if it's consuming in other directions. Absolutely. But uh, I realize I let the time get away from me. I somehow I'm starting to think this interview is going to go long, but I'm having fun. So, so bear with us, dear listener, as we pause for a moment where we shamelessly shill for the man. When a strange symbol is found at a burned down historical site, Houston arson investigator Emmy Anenzo goes to work. As mysterious and inexplicably hot fires break out across the drought-ravaged city, she finds herself digging through the ashes of history. It's a race against time to track down the serial arsonist and explain the seemingly impossible heat of the fires. As strange evidence begins to pile up, Amy wonders if the arsonist is insane, or even worse, possessed. Can Emmy and her colleagues find and stop him before the entire city burns? Parsec award-winning author Paul E. Cooley wraps ancient mythology around an eerie contemporary tale that will leave you burning for more. Gare's Inferno, a free podcast novel available from shadowpublications.com and iTunes. Some mysteries shouldn't be solved. All right. Welcome back to another, well, another episode. Welcome back from the commercial, people. I'm going to pretend I've done this before. Uh, we still have uh, J.N. Cheney, Jeff, and Jonathan Yanez here. Uh, and we're interviewing them and about to talk about their series that, that brought them here. So before we do that, let's let's round out these questions about uh, about them and their fans. So has anyone asked you for your autograph while out in public, away from a convention or a regular book signing? We'll start with you, Jeff. Ask me for an autograph? Um, no. I've been a when I you know at, at like writers conferences and stuff. Uh, no one ever wants an autograph. They just want to like ask you questions and and talk about like the genre and things like that. So I've had people come up to me like that that I didn't know um, other authors, but I've never gone to a fan convention or anything with uh, you know like a bunch of readers. So I haven't had that opportunity, and I don't really go outside a lot. So I think that kind of prevents me from running into people that might know who I am. Have we verified he's not a vampire, Jonathan? <laughs> not, not yet. I mean, I'm finding out new things about him all the time. I didn't know he went to Africa. All right. All right. So, uh, <laughs> has anyone uh, asked for your autograph out in public away from a convention, John? Uh, not autograph, but 
Um, one time we went out, not one time, a couple times now, we've gone out and just talking to people um, over whether it's like dinner, like friends of friends going out to dinner or like, I don't know, like a Christmas party or stuff like that. I've, it's cool because I've run across people who are like, oh yeah, you wrote that book. I've seen it like advertised on Facebook or like one of my friends was talking about it. So there's a small chance they might have me confused with somebody else, but I wouldn't like to think so. I would think I would like to think that they actually did see my book like advertised on Facebook or one of their friends was talking about my work. So that's been super cool to experience. I've actually seen oh, yeah. I was gonna say I've actually seen your stuff, your Gateway to the Galaxy stuff, um, advertised on some of the mobile app games I play. <laughs> oh, that's cool. So um, Yeah, I was just gonna say that actually reminds me of a, a funny story. Um I didn't meet anyone out in the wild or, or anything like that, but um, I had a uh, my my old college roommate's girlfriend at the time is still friends with me on Facebook, and she uh, connected with me again and was like, "Hey, how are you doing?" She just had a kid; she's like married and stuff, and she's like, "My husband." was sitting in bed the other day reading as he tends to do. And I leaned over and asked him what he was reading and he showed me and it was Renegade Star by Jane Chaney. <laughs> and and she was like, is that Jeff? <laughs> and so she looked it up and yeah, it was me. And she like, couldn't believe it. Right. Because he had, he doesn't know. He had no idea that we knew each other. Um, but that's how small of a world it is. <laughs> So I guess he's he's like in he's in my fan group and like he's uh you know I guess he found me through an ad or something like that but um yeah it's just it's just crazy um I've had that happen like twice where you know uh, a friend of a friend found me and then it turned out like we had like a connection in common or whatever um and I've I've been I've been in the middle of that too where like I had a, a really good friend who was like a huge fan of Richard Fox. And, uh, you know, I, I'm pretty good friends with Richard Fox. And he's like telling me about like the most recent book that he's reading. He's like, oh, I just read The Ember War. And I'm like, oh, I know that guy. Yeah, that's Richard. And he's like, oh my God, you know Richard Fox? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we talk all the time. And he's like, holy shit. And he like had this fanboy moment, you know, where he like freaked out. And I'm like, oh, dude, yeah, if you, you want to talk to him, like... <laughs> So I, uh, I told Richard about it and Richard sent him the entire Ember War series for free in paperback form sign, um, you know, just to be nice. And like, he just, he posted pictures about it, you know, when he got the books and it was like this huge, like fanboy moment. Um, but yeah, I mean like small world, you know, um, uh, sci-fi readers are, are a, um, I think a, a small ravenous bunch. And uh, it's not hard to like run into one of them or, or, you know, like in certain circles and then coincidentally, like they've, they've heard of your book. Richard Fox and I, that's, that's a, that's a bitter memories. He got me in trouble with my wife. I'm still, I'm still hearing about this one. Well, JR, when you cheat, you know, the other end <laughs> tends to be angry. So, so when, uh, when Podium was, was talking to us about our, and, and, you know, I'll keep this short because this interview is about you, but when Podium was trying to say, hey, you know, let us sign with your audiobooks and, and we can do, we can work with veterans too. They sent me a copy of the Ember Wars publisher's pack. So book one and book two as proof of concept. And I started listening just to hear what they were doing. And I got so engrossed. I like bought every audiobook out there. And this is before I knew about Audible subscription. And my wife got the bill and she said, you spend what? because <laughs> you know they're like 20 bucks a piece yeah 
Yeah, and he has a lot of them He out. does, he does. This is about two years ago at this point, so not quite as many, but still a lot. So I, I hope he had a nice steak dinner on me. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he's not sorry either. I've asked him about it. Not sorry at all. So, all right. He doesn't. He regrets, he regrets nothing. nothing. So, uh, finally, what's the weirdest or funniest <laughs> story about an interaction with a fan that you've had since you started writing, Jeff? Oh, man. Um, I don't think I've had any weird ones. Um, I've been hit on by fans a few times. So that was kind of weird. Look, I'm sorry. All right? <laughs> uh, restraining order. I'll honor it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, not you know, nothing, nothing bad. It's just like one of those things where you know you're uh, you'll you'll get a message from a, a reader and they like they're like a little too nice, you know, and then they'll call you like they'll call you handsome or something. You're like, what do I do in this situation? Like, I, I feel really bad for like like women uh, that are in this this field because I've heard firsthand about like some of the experiences they get. And I'm just like, I get like one or two, uh, you know, over the course of like four or five years. But I know a girl that's gotten like, you know, hundreds of like, uh, that's rough. Yeah. Proposition. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know how people deal with it. Uh, I can't even imagine, but like the one or two instances where it happened to me, I'm like, I get so uncomfortable because <laughs> I, I don't want to be mean, you know, like I don't, I don't like rejecting people or like being an asshole uh so that kind of thing is always kind of awkward for me so i usually just don't say anything <laughs> or i play it off and i'm just like oh haha thanks and then i just like stop responding uh, jeff you can't you can't spend all those hours at the gym and expect that not to happen oh my god you're yeah <laughs> no, no no don't don't listen to jonathan so like I, I i go to the gym and i lift weights and stuff but like jonathan is uh he's the one with all the muscles like that dude is like is ripped insanely ripped uh, i think he's being too nice i like working out at the gym but yeah i mean because it's because our jobs though are like all we do is sit down right whether we're writing books or doing um the hundred other things around launching a book that needs to get done it's it's important for authors i think to try to get some exercise and to stay healthy because we need these you know these awesome authors around for a long time to come but just like sitting down doing our craft it's probably one of the most unhealthiest things that we could be doing day in and day out. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they say, well, just real quick, they say for like every hour that you sit um, per day uh, or whatever throughout your day uh, takes time off of your life because you're not getting exercise or standing. So it's really important to go to the gym uh, at least three or four times a week. So that's like one of the big motivators for me is um, that I don't want to die, you know, before I'm like, you know, I want to live a really long time and be able to like travel and, and go on adventures and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, basically, uh, get out of my bubble eventually, you know, cause I spend a lot of time working. And so I'm always looking to the future and like what I want to do and the places I want to go. And then I think about like, well, how am I going to be able to do that if I have like, uh, aching back, you know, that starts hurting after standing for 10 minutes. And I say that because I've been in that position before where I sat for, you know, like a year ago, I was sitting all the time in a really bad chair to the point where I started having back pain just from sitting, you know, and, uh, and, and I would get up and walk around and then like the pain would just get worse. So that's why that's when I started working out, and I was like, okay, I got I to do something about this, and I started eating better and, and everything like that. And now it's all gone; it's fine. 
Um, but that was sort of a wake up call for me. And I think that, you know, like Jonathan's right, like we really have to take care of ourselves and make up for all the sitting that we do, um, you know, behind our desks. And it's, it's tough because like we have addicting jobs. I just did a live Q and a before this, uh, in my Facebook group. And I, I talked about this and it's like really hard to pull yourself away from the computer and stop working because you're doing it. You're in a job. It's like your dream job. It's the thing that you've always wanted to do. You've worked really hard to get to get here and like you don't want to stop. And so I know Jonathan works 7 days a week. You know, just hours and hours a day, and I work 7 days a week too, probably not as much as he does from like the amount of words that he churns out. But still like we're all working really hard and we're spending a lot of time sitting down. And so I've, I've, I've heard stories from people about how they've gone out and got standing desks. I know someone who's got a treadmill desk. I don't know how these people write on those things. I, I can't do it. Um, people take walks and use their phones to uh, like record their voices. You know, they do it. They, they write that way. Um, I just, I'm the traditional way where I sit at the desk all, you know, for a couple hours and I work. But then I go to the gym at like five o'clock at night. And I work out as hard as I can to the point where the next day I can barely move. And then I don't mind sitting, you know, and then it's fine. So funny hearing that, Jeff, because I do the same thing. But it's funny, like what we do to ourselves, like there has to be something wrong with us to sit down and work seven days a week and then kill our bodies physically at the gym and then come kill ourselves mentally in front of the computer. And we love it. So I had to uh, I had to do that, too. I finally realized that. uh that I wasn't 22 and, and, you know, running a million miles a day like I was when I was in the army. So I finally, I got sick of my doctor just like, oh, here's a pill for this or here's a pill for that. So I finally, I shopped around to get a doctor who wasn't like a farm, a walking pharmaceutical ad. So it's amazing what happens once you're able to, to start doing that, those kind of little things. But uh, before we turn this into the weightlifting hour, uh, sun's out, guns out. Um, Jonathan, what's the weirdest or funniest interaction you've had with a fan? Um, I don't know how weird it is, but I think it's like super sweet. I've had tons of fans offer to like send me things like Christmas gifts, like knit my daughter scarves and hats and like stuff like that and cookies. And my wife always gets angry because I give them our address and she's like, you don't know who these people are. You don't know what they're going to do. I'm like, ah, it's going to be fine. They're not going to want my address to come and try to kill me. You know what I mean? They like my books too much. (laughs) They want the next book to come out. They know if they kill me, the next book's not coming. Yeah, they're they're, they're going to kidnap you and hold you hostage. (laughs) Like in misery? Yeah, misery style. (laughs) Have you? you So, so far. First, I agree with your wife, get a P.O. box. And second, have you seen that uh, comic strip about why Stephen King never meets with his fans? And it's him at a book signing and this like serial killer looking dude. He's like, I'm your biggest fan. And if I'm not, tell me who they are and I'll kill them for you. (laughs) <laughs> it was one of those far side or farscape whatever those were those comics that used to be back in the yeah. day um i used to get those calendars um but yeah it always struck me but yeah get a peel box dude protect that little girl of yours i think we'll be fine i have too much wolverine in me to let anything back you gotta happen. sleep sometime yeah that's true we've got dogs and other stuff too i don't know maybe i should start worrying about stuff more i don't really worry about stuff i, I need to learn to not worry but i'm paranoid as everyone tells me so but they got they got pills for that if you take them maybe maybe the answer is 
<laughs> Maybe the answer is like meeting halfway in the uh, middle. One somewhere. day I'll get there. We can start our own little support group. Not paranoid enough and too paranoid. Like maybe we'll start something. <laughs> but all right. So this is the part, dear listener, where I normally list out the various series that Jeff and Jonathan have written. Uh, but they're both so dang prolific that to cover both of them, we'd need another hour. And we're already 50 minutes in. So instead, I'll let the authors tell us where we can get a primer of their various universes. And we'll jump right into the series we're talking about. So Jeff, do you have a place where you list everything you've written and maybe like suggested reading orders, et cetera? Um, well, I only have two series. So, um, you know, you have the variant saga and that's, you know, it's on Amazon one books, one through four. And then I have the renegade series, which is, you know, right now one through eight, uh, with a planned additional six books to go, seven books to go. Um, and then of course, Jonathan and I both have together the Orion series, which has only just started book two is coming out in about 10 days. So, you know, I think Jonathan's probably got the wider library, uh, with a lot more series under his belt, but for me, it's just the two. Um, but yeah. So, I mean, just, you know, my Amazon page. All right. What about you, Jonathan? Is there any place where you recommended reading orders? Yeah, like Jeff said, Amazon for sure. If you just go and type my name in, Jonathan Yanez, you can uh, look to see all the different series that I have. And then one of my fans is asking in my readers group, um, it's called Jonathan's Reading Wolves, by the way, if anybody wants to join. They're asking if I would put together like a recommended reading list. So I'm definitely going to do that. As soon as I come up from air in between projects, that's going to be next on my to-do list. But like my series in order, what I would recommend for them to start reading. Okay. So for Jonathan, it is your reading group. For both of you, it is your Amazon page. And Jeff sounds like he's got the uh, the most minimalistic series library to make it a little bit easier for everybody. Jeez. Okay. So uh, now that that's out of the way, because like I said, we didn't want to spend an hour just reading all the hundreds of thousands of books they've written. Um, I've looked at all of your books, and like I said, they all sounded amazing, but we're going to focus on your joint work together, the Orion Colony series. So how did you come up with the idea or premise for this joint series? Where did the spark of inspiration come from? And I'll let whoever started this answer this one. Oh, man, I had a hard time remembering what I did last weekend. Jeff, where did we come up with this book? Um well, I mean, in, in short, I, uh, I wanted to do a spinoff in the Renegade universe, and I had an idea in mind for a, uh, uh, for a certain time period, which is set 2,000 years before um, Jace meets Abigail in book one, um, you know, in Renegade Star. And so 2,000 years before that, um, humanity leaves Earth, right? It's, it's the great transient exodus is what it's called. Um, and so in this, we have about 12 ships that leave Earth. Um, and they, they look like moons. You know, they're huge, uh, like little Death Stars traveling the galaxy. And so uh, none of those, all but one, is never seen again. You know, like they've they've gone off into the various parts of the galaxy and like dispersed humanity and like, you know, people like uh, the portion of the galaxy that we're focused on in the main series, they've forgotten all about this, you know? And so because of various events. So I wanted to explore what happened to one of the other ships, one of those other colony ships. Uh, and so I talked to, we were, Jonathan and I were talking about doing a, a co-write together and you know, very briefly. And then I had this idea for the story, um, the, the basic seed of the idea. And I was like, Hey, I, I have like a really good, um, 
place for us to for us to put a story if you're interested in writing in this universe. And uh, you know, he gave it some thought for a few days, and then he came back uh, with a ton of ideas. And uh, of course, the usual Yanez excitement, which was just, like overflowing, you know, like uh, uh, you know, lots of lots of ambition and and uh, positivity. And, you know, I, I like to, I feed off of that energy, you know, myself and, you know, we're both really positive and optimistic people. And so we just got right into it and we started brainstorming, made like a uh, shared document. We worked on that for a little while, worked on the concepts uh, and like the world building and uh, really the general lore and where the story would go. And so we wanted to sort of create a, we wanted to create a different kind of story from Renegade Star Renegade Star is much more of a firefly type adventure with a small crew that's uh, like a, a mix or a bunch of misfits from various parts of uh, walks of life. Uh, this Orion colony uh, became more of like a colony fiction type story um, with a, a very different lead character and a very different crew. Um, very much in the in the style of lost um and that sort of exploration um mystery side of things uh where we're we're finding new locations uh one location i guess in particular and really exploring that and expanding that and um uncovering these ancient mysteries and you know uh really fleshing out this universe in different ways from the main series so it's you can come into Orion um, Colony completely fresh, never having read any anything else in the universe. But if you have read Renegade Star, or if you read Orion Colony first and go read Renegade later, it's going to add so much lore to the universe um, that I think a lot of readers will feel very satisfied. And uh, you know, because we, we're doing it in very unique and interesting ways, where it doesn't repeat anything that's happened in Renegade and doesn't really like tread old ground. It's all new. Okay. Um, we'll come back to the lost you, you mentioned as a reference. So Jonathan, what, since this is um, clearly uh, Jeff's existing renegade star universe, what part did you, did you bring to the table to add to the universe? So Jeff was really cool about, <clears throat> like I said, kind of like laying out a game plan, like let's do this. But inside of those parameters, he's been really cool about letting me, like, my imagination run wild. One thing I learned about myself, I don't really like rules. <laughs> I don't like people telling me, like, what I can't write or what I can write or, like, oh, don't do this. Or you can do that. Like, if they're trying to help me, that's something different. But, you know, just, like, black and white rules. So it's been really cool working with Jeff because, like, yeah, like, when we're talking, we're just, like, bouncing ideas back and forth. There's no, like, this is the right way or this is the wrong way. We're like, how about this? And how about there's monsters in the mist? And what about if there's like doors, like ancient doors, like nobody's open, like what's behind those doors? So that's been really cool, fleshing out the story of the survivors that crash land on the planet. And like Jeff said before, it was important for me to be different. Like we know what the readers in the Renegade universe like, but to be different than the main character. I just didn't want to do the same thing he had already done with his characters and his main character. So being a little bit different, but still giving the fans what they like. And that's been a lot of fun too. Okay. All right. So the, uh, for the rest of the questions, I'll let you guys decide who answers. Cause it's sort of about your joint project. So you can answer jointly, but um, the premise of this series reminded me of the show lost, which you mentioned as well. So was this intentional? 
Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, You'll have to, I guess, Jonathan will be able to give you a better answer um, than me. But yeah, w when we talked about it, we wanted to present a, uh, you know, like I said, a lot of mysteries, but have it pan out better than Lost did, where the answers either didn't come or they come in a very <laughs> dissatisfying way after several seasons. So um, what I prefer, I like I, I talked about this in the Q&A earlier today. I like to look at writing at, from a reader's perspective and like what I would want to see. And so I want my answers, you know, within the first couple books to the big question that gets presented. And then I, you know, I want like another question presented later, you know, and another mystery. Um, so we present a very big question at the end of the first book. Um, and, you know, we, we want to satisfy that question by the end of the second or, you know, sometime in the third book. And then we want more questions and more answers coming. Like we don't want, like we're, we want to have a smoke monster, you know, in book one at the or in like the first chapter or two, and then not explain what the smoke monster is until book 10. You know? Or like a polar bear in the jungle. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so <laughs> So more of a uh, but, yeah. approach. Well, yeah. So so I like I, I I like to look at these books. You know, like I said, sort of in a in a, um, a fast paced, you know, uh, quick delivery kind of way. And it's like if you read the main series, every single book has its own distinct arc, its own distinct um, antagonist and story and everything, uh, while still being connected. And um, that way, you can sort of look at book one. And remember that, okay, this is book one. That's what happens there. You can look at book four and say, well, that's the one where they get trapped on the ice planet. You know, it's like, oh, book three is the one where they encounter the moon ship. You know, it's like book five, they fight a giant AI that takes on the form of a mech, you know, a, a mech in space, like that sort of thing. Everything feels distinct and unique. And so that's what I want. That's my, that's my general writing philosophy. And so with this series, that's what we're trying to do with that too, so that every single book has its own feel and its own, uh, you know, story and, and discoveries and mysteries and answers all while building on the same original foundation from book one. Um, we don't want to stretch the story out unnecessarily like Lost did. And I think that is why uh, people got really upset and, and ticked off about it. But, you know, the initial mysteries it presented were so fascinating and interesting and powerful enough that they hooked people because they're in this unique area, this, this new world, basically this Island with all these mysteries presented to them and like the hatch and the polar bear and like all and the others, you know, and like all these things. And then, um, you know, so we're doing something like that, but in our own way, and we're not going to wait seven seasons to tell you what it is. Okay. So, um, did either of you guys watch the television show Lost then? Oh, yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Okay. That's just one. Uh, it, it came out at a point in time where it was not conducive for me to watch that. So, that aired in, what, 04? So, my senior year of college. And then, you know, the bulk of it aired while I was going in and out of, uh, out of forward deployment. So, there's just no time for it. But uh, all right. So uh, what did you think of the show other than you, you weren't satisfied with with the mysteries? Was there anything that you felt that it did right that sort of inspired this then? 
Oh, yeah. I think they did a good job with the character development and seeing different characters interact with one another. And I think they got it right introducing all the mystery elements, like what Jeff said. But what they got wrong is having that like payoff at the end. Like they would open up all these different loops and some of them would have payoffs, but some of them would not have payoffs for seasons upon seasons. Some of them never had a payoff. So I think what we're trying to do is introduce all those mystery elements, but make sure that we're giving the readers payoffs and explaining what's going on. Not just like throwing something out there just for that, like that cheap wonder effect and then never, you know, giving them what they want afterwards, never giving them answers. We're definitely going to give them exactly what they're looking for. And if somebody loved Lost, this would be a good series for you. Or even like Lost in Space, same thing. Okay. So um, do you have anything to add to that, or Jeff, or you want to move on? Oh, we can move on. I think that pretty much Okay. It. So I also detected some shades of the television show Lost in Space, which I loved watching as a kid. So did the series inspire you at all, or is that just you know wishful thinking on my part? No, I think definitely. Um, especially the newer series that hit Netflix. I haven't seen the whole thing. Because TV time for me is pretty limited between um, hanging out with my family and writing. But the episodes that I have seen do the same thing where they introduce that mystery element. And the more and more that I write, the more and more I'm falling in love with kind of like that thriller suspense aspect instead of straight up action. Because I can do straight up action. I've been doing straight up action for years and I still love that too. But I think kind of like what Jeff was saying where there has to be some sort of payoff. So build it up, build it up, build it up. And then maybe with like a crazy action scene, you can give them that payoff they've been waiting for. Okay. So uh, which inspired you more than, and you can um, either one of you answer it, the original television series, the remake of the television series, or the movie? Jeff, uh, I mean, excuse me, Jonathan, you said the the Netflix, the newer series, but what about you, uh, Jeff? Oh, I'd say the same thing. Um, the newer television series, because they land on that planet, and uh, a lot of the show from there involves exploring that planet. I would also say, you know, the same of Lost and... Uh, there was there was another show I think it was called Terra Nova. Oh yes, where they go back, yeah, with the dinosaurs, yes. and uh, you know that one. That show didn't really make it because like their budget was just too high to like they had they had to have like massive numbers to uh, justify the cost. And Fox doesn't manage but, TV um, shows they, very well, right? Yeah, so I mean, like some of that too. You know, like they go back in time to this ancient you know prehistoric period because Earth is like falling apart. And uh, when they get there, they start discovering like these really cool mysteries, like ancient writings, um, you know, in the stone when like no one like no one should be here. So we're kind of doing something like that. Uh, not not that exact thing, but something like that. And those types of mysteries, when they get to this place that they're going, um, they start to just uncover these like crazy uh, things in the planet, these, these mysteries. Um, but we already have answers for what those are. And, uh, you know, JJ Abrams is all about his mystery box. If you watch his interviews and, and, um, the way that he approaches filmmaking, he's all about having a mystery box and presenting it to the viewer and then letting them try to figure out what it is. But what his plan typically doesn't entail is knowing ahead of time what is in the mystery box. And I think that had that like really hurt him with Lost, and it really hurt him with like other shows uh, and movies and stuff. Uh, with, with the exception of maybe Fringe, Fringe was awesome. Yes, but like you know, with us, we're going into this with our mystery box, but we actually know what's inside of it. You know, we're planning stuff out 
And, you know, we have frequent phone calls where we talk about like, well, what do we want this to end up being? Like, how do we want this to go? Um, and so all of that is constantly in motion. It's, you know, it's always developing, but readers can rest assured that like it, we're not, we're not like just running blindly into these things. You know, there's always a, there's always some kind of plan in place. Okay. So the, uh, it seems like what you both love though, about, about the two series we mentioned was that sense of wonder and mystery. So does this, uh, does that mean this is going to be sort of a hopeful series? Oh yeah, for sure. We're not going to, you know, no, <laughs> we're not setting up readers to be, you know, disappointed or at the end. I think by definition, there's always hope, right? Like our characters are not going to give up. That's not who they are. They're going to keep on forging forward and find a way to survive. Yeah, actually. Um, so, so one of the things, at least with my readership is, uh, you know, they read, they read to escape the real world. You know, like I'm not writing for the game of Thrones audience. Um, you know, I'm writing, classic pulp science fiction from the fifties and sixties and uh, you know, those types of stories. And, you know, when the future was optimistic and there, it was something to look forward to and you could be like a little hopeful about things. Um, and it's okay to have some drama in that. It's actually really good. Um, it's okay to have like, you know, some downer moments and some deep character development. Like we love that stuff, but at the same time, uh, we do want to present an optimistic, exciting future where, you know, you can have these awesome adventures and discover these mysteries. Um, and, you know, like, we're not going to kill Ned Stark off in the, in the first book, you know. Um, and, and, and don't get me wrong, I love Game of Thrones. It's one of my favorite shows of all time. Um, but that's not the kind of story that I like to tell. You know, there are other people to do that. Uh, but that's not how I write Renegade Star. It's not how I wrote my first series, and that's not what we're doing with Orion Colony. But uh, yeah, to answer your question, it is a very optimistic and, and hopeful uh, story. With like, there's always, it, you know, by by the time the story is done, with you know, like the first or second book, it's like we have all this growth to look forward to, and you always want to end on like this hopeful, positive note. Uh, whereas like. You know, no matter how much tragedy happens along the way. Okay. So um, I, I read his preparation for this interview, and I always do. I, obviously, I can't read everything by every author we've ever interviewed. So I, I tend to read the 10% sample that Amazon will let you get, that little look inside sip it. And, and this definitely gave me some some vibes of that, the movie Interstellar. I don't know if you've seen it. Was that intentional or just happy coincidence? I think it was happy coincidence. With inter maybe like a little bit from Interstellar, but mostly from Lost and um, Lost in Space. But maybe there's a little. I guess from Interstellar, then would just be kind of like going out into the unknown, kind of like that aspect, like exploring the unknown. Okay. So would then Star Trek probably be a better fit than Interstellar as a comparison? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's probably a better one. Okay. Well, then um, that answers that question. So I will uh, move on. Yeah. Actually, um, real quick, just to reiterate that, um, I'd say Star Trek is definitely um, a pretty good comparison. The, the great thing that I think a lot of us grew up with, you know, with the next generation, Voyager, Deep Space Nine, was always that sense of optimism for the future. And that is ever present in Star Trek you know, which might be somewhat of a stark contrast to today's 
uh, sci-fi media, which tends to be very dark and gloomy and gritty and, um, you know, just, just very like depressing. Okay. So, uh, according to the blurb, this series is described as Battlestar Galactica meets Firefly with shades of Indiana Jones. So how does that, uh, unique, um, combination fit into the Orion star? Cause that's a, that is an interesting combination. Jeff, do you want to take that one? Uh, I said Orion Star. I meant Orion Colony. I was combining. I know what you meant. Well, you you broke up on my end when you were uh, reading that question. Can you ask it one more time? Sure. So, according to the blurb, this is series is described as Battlestar Galactica meets Firefly with shades of Indiana Jones, which I find an interesting combination. So, I was asking how those three sort of congealed in your mind to um, describe the Orion Colony. Um. Well, that's that's the description that I put for like all the Renegade books. So I think it fits that more than it does uh, Orion Colony. Um, I think I have saved for the description for book two that it's like Lost, um, you know, meets uh, Lost in Space and um, and Indiana Jones. But I would say the biggest takeaway on that one is probably Firefly and Indiana Jones. Um, you know, you have, you have this focus on a small crew that comes together across completely different backgrounds um, out of necessity and they become sort of a, a close knit family. And then at the same time you have, uh, you have like these, these ancient sort of mysteries that they're, you know, like sci-fi archeology span to an extent. Um, and that's what we try to really bring to all the renegade books and spinoffs is really that sense of um, mystery and wonder of like what came before. And, um, you know, before, before I, I switched over to creative writing and I was, a ma- I was majoring in archeology span and anthropology. And uh, I didn't see a future in that, but there was always an interest afterwards. And so I think that's bled into everything that I write. And uh, with Orion Colony, I knew straight away, and Jonathan was like on board very quickly with this um, to have like these sort of old mysteries, you know, where, where our characters were going and, and uncovering these things, and the, you know, on the planet and and those types of scenarios. I'm trying, I'm trying not to give away any spoilers, um, but yeah, definitely, definitely some Indiana Jones vibes, you know. And if you like that stuff, you like that kind of excitement that. Uh, real danger of like going through catacombs and, and places like that. And I think readers are really going to like where we're going with the series. Okay. So speaking of series, uh, the Orion Connie is clearly a series cause you've called it that on, on the great and mighty Zon. So you have one book out in the series already. So what's next for these characters? Where, where do you sort of see it going without giving any spoilers? Yeah, without giving away spoilers, that's a hard one to answer, but I'll do my best. So when Jeff and I were first talking about the series, we talked about maybe just doing three books, but I think now we've understand understood that there's so much to explore on the planet that we're going to be doing more than three books, and where it's going to be going is just our survivors. The main character's name is Dean. So our survivors and our main character, Dean, exploring and figuring out where exactly in the universe they are. And then if they can possibly call for help and if anybody out there is going to hear them or find them, 
but just a survival adventure story as they explore. And since they crash landed on a planet, like they have no idea where they are. There's tons to explore and all that. Like, you know what I mean? Like in real time, how long would it take us to explore a planet? Like, you know, it would take us a super long time. So we have plenty of fodder for imagination and plenty of different ways to go with the series. Okay. So we all know that every literary universe has its own internally consistent technology and rules of science. So what sort of tech can we expect from these books? FTL, ray guns, teleporters. Uh, what are we going to see when we open the pages of the Orion Colony? Uh, this is a good one for Jeff. He's the universe master when it comes to this stuff. He's actually saved me a couple times because the Orion Colony in this series exists in his Renegade series. So there's a couple times where I had... Um, like these, these seed ships, these seed colony ships were being built on Earth, but I had them being also launched from Earth. And he was like, no, we need to have them launched from Mars. So I'll let Jeff answer this question. He knows. Um, so in this universe, um, you know, technology has advanced uh, far beyond what we have now, but it's still somewhat familiar. So it's not like so futuristic that it's like, confusing and, and uh, hard for, you know, the average person to wrap their head around. Um, but it's also more advanced in the Orion colony than it was in Renegade Star because Renegade Star, that series, the main one, that's more like Firefly in that characters have like, you know, pistols on their hip, like regular guns um, because they sort of gone backwards technologically since this time period um and so right now when we're while we're writing about this you know it, at this time period this is like the peak of human technology so we have ships the size of moons that can uh travel through slip tunnels which are essentially you know like um on a on a uh like a, a the space beneath our own you know type like slip space, they can open up tunnels and move through those tunnels freely. Um, they can, you know, these ships can create them and move like as however they want, which is not something you can do in the main series. You know, we can only use existing tunnels. Um, you know, our technology is, is so advanced that there are people known as Eternals and Eternals are immortal human beings with albino skin, white hair, blue eyes, and, um, you know, they're genetically almost perfect. They can regrow their limbs um, to a certain point. Uh, they can heal from almost, almost any wound. Not instantly. This isn't like Wolverine, but like they, they are like genetically superior. And that plays into the mythology and the backstory and why all this is happening. You know, and so we've got, we've got um, AI known as uh, cognitives, which are like fully sentient beings. And uh, the, the Orion colony ship, this big moon, is, you know, controlled by a cognitive. And, uh, you know, she uh, manages, like, everything on the ship, you know. And so we've got those in the main series, but they're, like, thousands of years old at that point, some of which have gone crazy, some of which have lost lots of memories because it's been so much time has gone by. But right in this story, we're getting them at their prime. You know, like this is, like I said, when technology is at its highest. Um, and, you know, we've got like uh, a galactic defense network in place uh, for Earth, you know, uh, that like, you know, with tons of drones and 
a cognitive controlling that named Hephaestus, which appears in the later book or, you know, in the, uh, the main series. Um, and so readers are going to see stuff in the, in, at least in my opinion, in these books that are highly advanced, but still relatable enough. And if you've read the original series, you're going to see a lot of familiar things. Um, but while before it was like ancient technology, now it's like present still working, you know, um, fully functional. Okay. So while this is a question then for you, since you were the lore master, while other, with the other series that you write in the, um, how do you keep this one straight in your mind? Like, do you, how do you manage your, your lore? then so you don't mess make those mistakes especially when you're writing two series in this universe in different points in time uh, i mean it's really not that hard you know like i don't i've never had a really hard time i, I guess i get i get so invested in the stories um that it's not really like watching a tv show or like you know loosely producing something um jonathan and i talk about the books a lot and so they're ever present in my mind um I'm always thinking about them. And then, you know, outside of that, like the main series, I don't really write other stuff. I, I stick to Renegade. That's all I write. And so the overarching narrative is pretty concretely set in my mind. Um, and the details are too. But additionally, on top of that, I also have like editors. I have, a, I have my content editor, you know, who has been with me since I got into writing. Uh, I met him in basic training. And, you know, he's, he's, he's like the smartest guy I've ever met. So he like goes through every single book that I write and checks for like consistency and, and, uh, you know, like helps me with, uh, like my shortcomings. Like I don't know weapons as well as I should. And, and every once in a while I'll mess something up like, oh, well that sniper rifle doesn't work that way, you know, or like, you know, whatever the case is he'll fix it. And so he's intimately familiar with the books too in the universe. And so whatever I don't catch, he'll catch. And then the other editor that I have will catch something. Um, and then the proofreader and they've all read the books multiple times. So we're pretty good about just like keeping the lore intact. And if we don't, for whatever reason, catch something, the readers will catch it. And then we hear about it for days. Um, and then we fix it. So not, not, not too hard. I think as we bring in more co-writers, um, we have two new co-writers um, positioned to start in 2019 in this universe. Um, and I think as we do that, like right now I'm working with one of them as he reads through the books to create a uh, Bible. Um, so he's helping me with that. And I think that as we move forward, we'll have that Bible in place and then it won't really be an issue. And I won't have to have, I won't have to worry as much about it because I'll have a, a, a point of reference to go to and so will the writers. But uh, for right now, because it's just me and Jonathan and, you know, it's really just the two series. It's, it's not that, it's not that difficult for me, uh, but it, it has the potential to be at some point when the universe grows exponentially larger. Okay. Fair enough. So um, do you have trouble keeping it straight in your head, Jonathan, or do you just let him guide the ship? <clears throat> um, keeping it straight, like the events that I know need to happen or like not getting it confused with my other series. I don't have a problem with that because like when I'm writing a series, I'm all about that series. And that's the only thing that I'm concentrating on. 
Um, if another idea pops into my head for another series, I just table that and put it in the back burner. The reason I'm able to write quickly is because I just have laser focus on one thing and then that's it. So any questions I do have about the lore, I, um, Jeff is only like a phone call away. So he's been cool about, um, answering any questions I have about Eternals or like how they heal and stuff like that. Okay. All right. So the next question that Chris always loves to ask about uh, conventions and fans that know more about the books than you, we're going to skip because we've already established that Jeff is a vampire who never leaves his house. So um, this next question is for you, though, Jeff. Um, how did your collaboration with Jonathan Yanez come about? Like, how did you first discover him and decide that he was your guy for this specific series? Um, I met Jonathan through Justin Sloan um, a while ago because they did a co-write together and, you know, I'm friends with Justin. So we, uh, we had talked briefly, um, and I had asked him, you know, how was it working with Jonathan? And he had nothing but positive things to say. And so, uh, Jonathan and I connected at some point, I don't remember how or why. Um, and then Jonathan had asked me if I would be interested, like after we started talking and we got to know each other, he was like, you know, uh, would you be interested at some point in writing together? Like we should totally do something. And I was like, yeah, sure. Um, you know, when I have the time, let's totally do that. Um, and at the, at that time, I think I was like inundated with, um, getting the next book out. And so I was, I was a little overwhelmed, but a few months later when things settled down a bit and I'd started thinking about ideas, that's when, you know, I went to him and I was like, you know, I've got an idea if you're still up for it. And he was, and it just went from there. But yeah, I would say like Justin Sloan and their co-write together uh, opened that door. Okay. So Jonathan, um, at first, I think we need to take a moment of silence to mourn the bromance that died when Jeff stole you away from me. So please give me a second. We need to get tattoo yeah, tears. Okay. Like the prisoners. Yeah, yeah we'll do that. Commemorate what it's... once was. But okay. Um, back to the follow-up question. So what was your reaction to, um, I'm sorry, it's a little emotional, but what was your reaction to Jeff's proposal? (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah. Um, what's cool about working with Jeff is that he knows his universe so well, and there's such a crazy following behind his books already. So it was like, there was never anything in my mind, like these books could ever fail because both of us independently have done well. So I knew that bringing both of everything that we know and um, we've grown over the last two years for individual businesses, bringing those together, that you know it wasn't going to be a hard sell or hard to get this series off the ground. So yeah, I was just excited to start Was working. there anything about this project specifically that's like any one aspect of it that excited you more or just in general terms? I It was exciting for me to have another series to go to because I'm winding down my Gateway to the Galaxy series, the last book in that uh, series already launched. So I'm done with that one. And then I have my next series launching in February, but that's only three books um, that we're going to rapid release. I'm going to rapid release that one with April Baker and then we're done. So it was cool to kind of see like what's going to be next on the horizon. And then as Jeff and I have been working, everything has been really cool. And the book one has been well received. We plan on going, you know, further than just three books in this series, you know, maybe even going like six to nine, depending on, you know, if fans are still liking it and everybody's happy. Okay. So in the the preparation for this, I asked about aliens because, you know, I like talking about it. Obviously I write science fiction. 
So, and you told us in, in the most vague term possible, so you didn't give me any spoilers, that this series will eventually have, at some point, aliens in it of varying degrees of sentience. So, how do you come up with these aliens? Do you come up with them out of whole cloth, or do you let nature sort of inspire you? Like, what what do you guys do when you're creating the aliens for this universe? Well, you're right now, we've hinted that there are aliens, and in book two, I don't want to give too much away for the fans, but in book two, uh, we might see some of these. So I don't want to answer that question in depth because I don't want to ruin it for anybody. But yes, for sure, we are. Jeff and I are talking about how we are going to set that up for the future. So then when you both, um, we can speak in more general terms without talking specifically about this series then. When you both are sitting at the writing desk and you said, let's, let's create these aliens for whatever universe it happens to be. Like what goes through your head? How do you design your aliens? Oh, okay. So not specifically for Ryan. It could right. be like well, for any universe. I like asked for this like series, but you, uh, you've implied that uh, answering that would give spoilers. So let's ask it in the more general sense. When you create aliens, as someone who also loves the genre of science fiction, like when you're making your own aliens, what, what do you – like how do you do it? Like what's your process? I don't know. I always see just like images. I usually write what I see in my head so I can imagine alien. And usually, you know, I'm drawing from inspiration, whether it's like Star Wars or the Green Lantern Corps or an animal or something like that. And then I go ahead and see that in my mind, what they would look like. And I just write down what I see. Okay. What about you, Jeff? Um, so with aliens, I always try to make them unique and interesting. Um, I, I love Star Trek to death, but because of budgetary reasons, you know, they could only do so much with their aliens. So they, it, the running joke became like, Oh, well just change their forehead, you know, and put a little makeup on. Um, so for, for our stuff, you know, I, I really like to, I, I really want to provide like a, a new unique type of thing, um, but not so alien that it's like impossible to communicate with or whatever, um, you know, but we're going to have varying degrees of, uh, like he said, you know, like Jonathan said, sentience. And I think you're going to see that reflected in the types of aliens that we present. Um, I typically, like in Renegade Star, we have different forms of humans um, along the evolutionary ladder in the future. So you have transients, which are normal people. Then you have eternals, which are that like albino, um, genetically engineered long-lived you know fast healing human then you have eventually uh, a type of human called a celestial and they are probably the most alien of the three um they actually look like angelic beings uh and they're like extremely powerful creatures but they're still humans like they evolved from human beings that self-evolution um what we're gonna do is going to be an exploration into um, alien life and how varied that can be. But in Renegade Star, there are no aliens. They're never talked about. We never see any, just variations of humans. So we have to keep all of that in mind too while we write this um, because it is a prequel series that takes place 2,000 years before. It's in a galaxy with very little alien life but lots of like animal life and lots of like, you know, humans and everything. Um, so we can't really go 
over the top. You know, we can't have like 50 different species or even, even 10 different species. And we have to be very careful about how we present them and in what context. So I'm trying not to give anything away with all that, but uh, you know, readers will see, I think the, what I'm, what I'm trying to say uh, when they get into it. Okay. So rapid fire answer. Uh, aliens. I have to ask, are there aliens out there? Jeff, go. Uh, yes. All right, John, go. Yeah, for sure. Okay, that's the right answer. You get to stay. All right. So um, I've skimmed the reviews, as I always do. Uh, this helps the right readers find the right book. So please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. Your first book in this series has 35 reviews with a 4.75 rating. The, uh, the only three negative reviews mention editing issues. I know you both used uh, professional editors, so I took these reviews with a grain of salt. I only mentioned them to, to ask this. What do you, why do you think indie authors get hit with these blanket charges of uh, lacking editing without specific examples? I've seen it on books a lot lately and wondered if the reader was reading the same book that I was, and it has me wondering, what do you think this means about the shifting reader base or, or just the industry in general? I don't know if they know for sure that we're indies. Like, I don't, I don't know how many readers are aware of that when they're reading a book and or uh, leaving a review. So I don't know. I talk it up like to who knows. I mean, if there was a comma out of place, like some people get crazy about commas out of place or if there was a, a period that should have been a question mark. Some people go crazy about that. So, I mean, I try to take it all with a grain of salt. Like you said, there's, what, 4.75 out of a five-star rating. Absolutely. So if the worst thing people had to say was that there was, you know, a typo that they found, they didn't even tell us what it was, then it's all right. You can't please everybody, right? I mean, we can, we're writing for the masses, so we know for sure not everybody's going to love it. All right. And what about you, Jeff? Do you have anything to add, or are you just going to go with that one? Um, yeah. So, I mean, when it, when it comes to reviews um, – you have to take a lot of the uh, the editing comments with a grain of salt. I have run Renegade Star through four editors since its debut um, for various reasons, you know, because I'll go through and change something or I'll, or I'll make heavy edits and I just want to make sure that everything's fine. And to this day, I mean, I still get like occasional reviews that vaguely mention an editing issue or a formatting issue or something like that. But they're so vague, like they don't actually specify anything. You know, they don't give examples. They don't do anything like that. So it's, it's, I, I feel like, and I, and I've encountered, you know, and, and this isn't to, you know, call anyone out or anything like that, but like I've encountered readers who have come to me before and they, they've said like, um, you know, you've got, some issues here and they'll point to it. And then I, I look at what they're talking about and it's like completely wrong, you know? Um, but they think that it's right. And, and a lot of us have misconceptions about grammar, punctuation, and all that uh, word choice. And we think that when you have a sentence fragment in a first person narrative, that that's wrong when it's actually a stylistic choice. And I don't think a lot of people fully understand that. It's like, yes, okay, like if you're an English professor and you're writing or you know, you're know, you writing a, a paper or whatever, yes, there are certain rules that have to be in place. But when you're writing a, a piece of fiction, those rules change. 
you know, and, and that's the same with third person, first person, especially because you're writing someone's voice. A lot of things go out the window. Doesn't mean that the book can read like ass or anything like that, but um, there are certain things that change stylistically. And so people will present, you know, what they consider grammatical um, mistakes, but when they're, when they're actually not, you know? And so I assume when I read those reviews a lot of times that that's what I'm getting is someone that has a high opinion on grammar and uh, you know, but they don't fully understand that those things might change when you're writing fiction. Okay. So uh, continuing with, with the analysis of the reviews, which I look at before buying novels, um, the rest of those that rated you had positive sentiments. One of those reviewers felt that you guys developed the bad guys even better than, than you did the good guys. So was this intentional? And what is it about bad guys that you think draws readers in? I often find myself siding with the protagonists, Goth Solis, Darth Vader, the Emperor, writ large. Yeah, so it's always important for me. I always remember that your hero can only be as great as your villain. So when you have a villain out there, especially a crazy one, and I like writing crazy villains the best just because, I don't know, I always feel like I have that side in my head saying like, oh, maybe it's not so bad. Maybe you could do it this way. So when I'm writing villains, again, just, yeah, making them super strong and believable and for the most part crazy um, so that your hero has someone, you know, very, um, very harsh or combative to deal with because your hero has to rise to a new level to be able to defeat the villain in their story. So yeah, for sure. It was done on purpose. I wanted to make sure that the villain in our story was very believable and people could relate to him too. All right. Well then the next question, so uh, I know we're running long, so um, I'll ask the next question to you, uh, Jeff. So continuing on with the positive reviews, I see that this book was positively compared to Heinlein and Asimov saying that this novel brought back the sense of wonder and joy of exploration that they felt was missing from modern science fiction. How humbling is that comparison? I mean, like, wow, literally, wow. Like when I got that uh, section of the review, I remember it was like one o'clock in the morning, my time, and I'm sending poor Jonathan these messages. And uh, I I was highly impressed, by the way, with with that comparison for you guys. But uh, what is it um, about those style of writing that that joy and wonder that you think appeals to you as a as a writer and a reader that they're they're seeing in your books? Um, Well, I'm I'm flattered, of course, you know, uh, when I see stuff like that. But um, you know, having, having read Heinlein, you know, and Asimov, uh, over the years and growing up, well, not, not necessarily growing up with it, but, um, you know, when I was in college and stuff, reading them extensively, um, and idolizing those names, just like Kurt Vonnegut or Scott Card, you know, and, um, and Joe Haldeman to be compared to that, I think is, you know, a little unfair to them <laughs> because, you know, <laughs> That's, it's, I, I think that's uh, it's humbling for me, um, but you know, I think I have a long way to go before I can ever come close to that mountaintop, um, both in, in style, experience, and uh, you know, just, just knowledge. You know, like Isaac Asimov, he wrote over 400 books, most of which were nonfiction, um, and was a, uh, at his time a modern-day Renaissance man. Like he was well-versed in multiple sciences, history, everything. The man was an expert on multiple topics. Um, And so 
when you read his stuff, all that comes through, you know, like he was writing hard science fiction in ways that no one had ever seen before. So, you know, and, and when you read the foundation series, which is what my books get uh, likened to more often than not, um, I think because of the lost earth aspect of it, um, that's cool. But at the same time, those books are on just a, a completely different level. Uh, just as far as stories go, you know, and I think that there's a reason that they're classics and they're always going to be classics. Um, and that is, that has always been like a dream of mine to be at that level. Um, as I think it is with most authors, you know, like, uh, Jonathan mentioned growing up reading C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. And, uh, you know, we've all heard the stories about how they were, they were best friends taking a writing class together, smoking pipes, at the local pub, like hobbits in the evening and talking about stories. And, uh, you know, I think we all to a certain level or to a certain degree, like want to be like that. Like we want to be remembered like that, um, and go down in history and, and have our books read for generations. I think I have a long way to go before I get to that point, uh, if it ever happens. Um, but you know, anyway, to answer your question, I, I really appreciate it when people do that. Um, it means a lot to me. Like, I think more than people realize because those are my heroes. Okay. Well, uh, that uh, review would be hard to top. So I won't even try to bore the readers after that. We'll just, we'll go out on top. So are there any other forms of media that are coming out in this universe, RPGs, movies, video games, etc., on the uh, Renegade Star slash Orion Colony universe? Uh, yeah, so um, Jonathan and I are always talking about expanding in different, into different media uh, with Orion Colony. We've talked about video games, we've talked about comics, we've talked about like short films and things like that. And so um, depending on how successful the series becomes, we can branch out and explore additional um, you know, forms of media. Uh, as far as the Renegade Star series as a whole, the universe goes, we're bringing in Josh Hayes and Scott Moon uh, next year to write new series. I'm putting together an anthology of short stories um, of varying sizes that'll be both written by fans as well as other, you know, prolific writers. So we have like CC Equity coming in uh, to write a story in this universe. We have like, of course, all of the all of the co-writers. So Jonathan, uh, I'll be writing one. Josh Hayes, Scott Moon, um, and you know, I've got you know, reaching out to other people too. I think, um, you know. Um, possibly well i just won't i don't want to i don't want to say any unconfirmed names yet i don't want to put anyone on the spot but yeah we we might have that um coming in in about mid 2019 um and of course you know i'm i'm always open to like video games and movies and and all that stuff it's just really difficult to get off the ground when it comes to visual media comic books are a little bit easier but the value in doing them just isn't quite there yet um but it is something that we could do uh so we're just always keeping our our options open and we're always receptive to that type of stuff like i said i had a fan reach out and ask if he could make um some short videos for renegade star um so i never say no you know at least i try not to and if the universe presents something that seems really cool like that i'm not going to say no to that Okay. So uh, was there anything about the Orion Colony series that we didn't ask that you want to cover before we start wrapping this stuff up? Well, before we move on, just real quick, uh, Jonathan actually has a video game 
that's in development. I don't know if he wants to talk about that. Oh, yeah, the um, video game. It's a mobile app that's coming out for Gateway to the Galaxy. So if that does well and everybody's happy with myself and, like, the company <clears throat> and it makes sense to invest, you know, uh, some more money and some more time, we could definitely open up that option to the Orion Colony, um, like, as a mobile video game app as well. Okay. So um, other than that, though, we, we got anything you want to add before we start the wrap-up portion? I think just that Orion Colony, um, we are, like, a week away very close to signing a deal with Audible for the Orion Colony. So people who just prefer to listen to audiobooks or if they're super busy, they don't have time to read, they can be excited about that. That should be coming out if everything moves along early 2019. Okay. Um, since you've written this uh, novel uh, in the genetic engineering subgenre, uh, what's your biggest pet peeve when you're reading about other medically enhanced peoples? Remember, speak generally. Uh, we don't need to call anyone out. Karma is a thing. So, Jeff, what's your biggest pet peeve in the genetic engineering sub subgenre? I don't really have one, I guess. Uh, I think it's when it just gets a little like when you when you when you um get close to fantasy levels of sci-fi, you know, where it's just over the top and unrealistic. Like there's only like genetics are really interesting. Like all my books contain some kind of genetic engineering aspect to them, especially the first series that I did. So, you know, I love that stuff, but genetics can only change so much, you know, and you can only do so much with that. Um, so I, I have like cringe moments sometimes where I'll, I'll see something in a movie and it's like, okay, well, this person just became like a God because they like had a, you know, it was like a genetic experiment on them. Uh, you know, and knowing what I know about genetics, it's sort of like, it's very unrealistic and everything. And, you know, you don't see that a whole lot though. I think people are pretty good about keeping it realistic and grounded to an extent. Uh, sometimes when you watch something like X-Men, you just have to suspend your disbelief and just go with it. Um, but that's genetic engineering. Well, you know, natural genetic evolution, I guess. Um, but yeah, I, I don't really see it too often with, uh, with books. You know, I, I find that most sci-fi authors that delve into genetic engineering tend to do an okay job at it, you know, uh, or at least keep it vague enough to where we can fill in the gaps ourselves with our own imaginations. All right. What about you? Um, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't want to cut you off. Oh, no. I was just going to say that, like, uh, the only time that I, I really have an issue with that is when people over-explain and they get too involved in the minutia of it and then they mess up. Okay. You know, because they're not, they're not geneticists. And so if you get too specific about things like that, it's bound to cause a problem to somebody. You know, and I've been guilty of that myself. So that's why I say that. Okay. Well, the next uh, question then is going to be for you, Jonathan, as we uh, want to end this section on a positive note. So what about genetic engineering done right? Obviously, you give yourself top billing. So who would be your, your second pick for the best in this subgenre? Um, I think he might be a little bit more steampunk, but there's a author who I know. His name is James Blaylock. And he actually teaches at Chapman University, which isn't too far away from where I live. And I've uh, been on a panel with him before. And I think he does it really well. Again, he's a little bit more steampunk than genetic engineering, but he has some of that in there as well. 
he does a good job of it. Okay. Well, I will list him in the show notes and we can um, do that. So um, last question, do uh, what are you guys reading in the genre? Cause enough about your books. Uh, shameless plugging is over. What are you guys reading? Jonathan, you go first. This is the mad minute. So I need you to answer quickly. Chris is going to kill me for having to edit all this. <laughs> I- <laughs> I'm uh, just finishing up Old Man's War. I do audiobooks, so listening to that in the car while I'm driving around, just trying to immerse myself in that uh, you know sci-fi genre and learn as much as I can. What about you, Jeff? Um, well, I just read the uh, the Bob Berth books. Well, the first one, I should say. I'm like halfway through the second one, and that was one that I listened to on audio. Um, and I've been moving, so you know, and unpacking, so I haven't had as much time to read. But I uh, recently read um, a Stephen King book, The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon, which isn't really sci-fi. It's just a horror book. But yeah, um, I've also been binge watching, you know, Daredevil. So (laughs) there's that, too. All right. And um, since we are already at the one hour and 50 minute mark, we're going to skip the, you know, science fiction that or excuse me, the uh, science articles that you guys are excited by. I will list leave those links in the show notes for you, dear listener, so you can see what we would have said if we hadn't gone super, super long. But I feel like what what we got was good stuff. So so I hope uh, you'll be understanding. And um, before we bring this uh, this race to a close, Jeff, how can listeners find you? Um, you can go on to jnchaney.com. Um, it doesn't get updated as much though. So that's not the best place to see what I'm doing. If you're really looking for up-to-date information, um, almost on a daily basis, I would look on Facebook for JN Cheney's Renegade Readers. Um, we have a Facebook group of over 2000, um, sci-fi fans and, uh, very positive, very like, you know, um, inviting, uh, people, um, everyone loves talking about sci-fi, uh, and just books in general. So if you're looking for a good place to connect with people, um, like-minded people, that's, you know, that's a, a nice little hub that we've created. And on top of that, I would, I have a Facebook fan page and yeah, Amazon, you know, you can, uh, find my email on there if you want to talk to me directly. Okay. And what about you, um, Jonathan? I was uh, really similar to what Jeff was saying. If you go to Facebook, I have a group called Jonathan's Reading Wolves. And then for like, if you just prefer a newsletter, you can go to jonathan-yanyas.com. And then that's my website and you can join the newsletter too. All right. And you can find us at www.sfshenanigans.com. Our Twitter is at sfs underscore show sierra foxtrot sierra underscore show our email is podcast at sf shenanigans.com and our shenanigans facebook group is facebook.com backslash groups backslash sf shenanigans thank you for spending some of your precious time with us for chris winder i'm jr hanley and this was the sci-fi shenanigans podcast we'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of space and all things that go boom all right thank you for sticking with us through that uh, archived episode that was in the uh 
in the digital memory hole that we found. We thought you'd enjoy it. So thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Nick Garver and Doc Seska, I am J.R. Hanley, and this was the Archive for the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back at our regular scheduled time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom.